Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to episode 300 of the Family Medicine Rocks podcast for Thursday, April 4, 2013. On today's show, remember when Twitter was a cool place for public conversation? Not anymore, says my upcoming guest, Meredith Gould, author, blogger, digital strategist, and founder of the Church Social Media Chat. We'll discuss that. And on this anniversary 300th show, I'll be doing something I have never done before in 300 episodes. What could that be? (laughs) That's called a professional teaser there, folks. All that coming up on episode 300 of the Family Medicine Rocks podcast starting right now. show that is passionate about medicine and social media. This is the Family Medicine Rocks podcast. I am your host. My name is Jimmy Fallon, and I'll be uh, taking over the show. Nick, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just, just, just kidding. Of course, my name is Mike Savilla, your favorite family physician host. What is this show about? Uh, I tell people this is social media through the eyes of a family physician. I encourage you to check out my digital library of stuff at FamilyMedicineRocks.com. And a shout-out to all the people following me on Twitter, all 11,841 people. Thank you so much for that. And a big shout-out to everybody uh, who liked the Facebook page for this show, uh, all 786 of you out there. Thank you so much for that. It is uh, Thursday, April 4, 2013. It is noon Eastern Daylight Time. And here at Family Medicine Rocks World Headquarters, Feels like 34 degrees Fahrenheit on April 4th. That's right. But today it's going to be on its way up to 50 degrees Fahrenheit today. So uh, time to get the bike out. No, no, I don't have a motorcycle. No, no, I, I have I have a a, a a 10-speed bike out there. So uh, it's going to be a good time later today. Uh, but how's your week going there, kids? Uh, again, thank you so much for your continued support of the show. And uh, thanks to everybody who retweeted uh, coming up to today's live broadcast. Thank you so much for that. That's why I love live shows. So it's uh, it's uh, good stuff going on out there. And for people who are curious, yes, there will be a Saturday night show here uh, this week. Still figuring out the time uh, for the live show with Cat. Uh, so stay tuned on the Twitter feed for that. Uh, but my guest uh, coming up, and she's on hold right now, so I can say anything I want. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, was uh, is uh, Meredith Gould, uh, digital strategist, author, blogger, founder of the Church Social Media Chat, hashtag C-H-S-O-M. And on her website, I'm just quoting here, the uh, Supreme Word Goddess of the Universe. That's right, uh, MeredithGould.com. Check that out. And this whole show today, show number 300, was sparked by a, uh, a tweet that she did last week, and I'm going to quote here. Ah, Twitter, I remember when public conversations offered rich engagement among tweets wrestling with great questions. Now I get that via direct message. And I also read a blog post about that this week at FamilyMedicineRocks.com. You can check that out. Uh, so looking uh, uh, <laughs> uh, looking forward to this uh, conversation uh, coming up. But first, um, I do want to thank Blog Talk Radio for having me be a featured host here on this network. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I've been a social media hobbyist since 2005, and if you're curious, yes, I am a real doctor. I am a uh, family physician 
in full-time private practice, meaning I see patients uh, five days a week in the hospital and in my office here in beautiful but cold uh, northeastern Ohio. Uh, so I will uh, take my break, and uh, after our break here, uh, we'll be having Meredith Gould on the line. Looking, uh, looking forward to this conversation. You're listening to the Family Medicine Rocks podcast, the unofficial podcast of the Family Medicine Revolution. Just Google FM Revolution for more details. And also a member of the ProMed Network of podcasts, you can uh, go to promednetwork.com, and we'll be right back. Family Medicine's leading voice in social media, in my own mind. This is the Family Medicine Rocks podcast. Uh, and on the line with us, <laughs> I'm looking for this is going to be good stuff. Uh, the, the founder of the social media, uh, Church and Social Media Chat, author, blogger, digital strategist, Meredith Gould is on the line. Meredith, uh, welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, I thought I was the leading voice in social media. <laughs> well, uh, sure. Uh, we, we, we can uh, we, we like a tag team type of thing. We can share. Okay. We can share. We can share. Yeah, see, I'm it's, looking forward to this because I have this whole, like, outline of notes, which I know I'm not going to get to uh, because we're just going to talk about stuff. Uh, but <laughs> this is going to be very, very fun. Um, but before we kind of dive into kind of our main topic, um, you know, a lot of my audience are, are not familiar with you. So kind of a, as, as kind of a jumping off point, maybe uh, talk a little bit about um, – you know, how you started in, in social media, um, how you got interested in it. Um, you can even sprinkle a little bit uh, of uh, your your kind of healthcare angle and, and uh, maybe of your, your church uh, background as a little bit well. But I think just to start out, uh, my audience is, is curious about, you know, social media in general with, with you, Meredith, as far as how you started in it, uh, what, what made you interested in it, and why don't we kind of start from there. Okay, great. Um, well, um, social media, I was involved with social media before it was social media. And, in fact, one of the public conversations I've had with Ellen Savalas, I'm probably pronouncing her name wrong, is that she, and actually E-Patient Dave, too, there's a whole cohort of us who were involved with social media when it took the form of bulletin boards, chat rooms, and forums on CompuServe and AOL. And that was really kind of the history, and that was in the early, mid-'90s. Um, and a lot of us were uh, moderating and hosting chat rooms and getting involved with threaded conversations and understanding the value of online digital engagement. And we understood that before we even used words like digital engagement, and we used that before anybody talked about being online to uh, build community. And actually, one of my claims to fame was writing a, a very an article very early on that was published by Natural Health Magazine, which was really targeting the holistic health and complementary medicine group of, of people users and practitioners, um, and it was called Health Online. And I talked about how I used the CompuServe chat room to make decisions about whether or not to have a microdiscectomy in 1993. And that article was published, I think, in 95 and was one of the first ones. So uh, my involvement goes way back. In terms of its current... Um, incarnation as social media that we sort of know today, although it's changed in the past seven years, uh, I got involved in, I guess, five years ago, five or six years ago, my first, my first social media actually was LinkedIn. Uh, a social media, I think, is horribly underutilized um, by all sorts of folks and institutions. 
Yeah, we should we should talk about that a little bit later. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, bracket that, bracket that, and especially yeah. when we get to church, there's a whole exactly. whole harangue. Oh, whole, whole thing. Okay. <laughs> I know harangue, my middle name. Um, and uh, and then I got involved with Twitter when my um, I have I'm actually in the process of my ninth book is coming out, and my ninth book is called The Social Media Gospel: Sharing the Good News in New Ways, and that's being published by Lit Press, and that's a book that looks at social media for church. Um, and we need to talk. If I don't remind myself, please remind me. I want to talk about the overlap in my healthcare communications and my church communications and also the people engaged in that because it goes to one of the issues about what is in the back channel and what is public. But zipping through my own uh, bragging. Um, anyway, in 90, in um, I guess five years ago, in 2008, uh, I published a book called The Word Made Fresh, Communicating Church and Faith Today. And that was a book about how church communications, communicating church and faith, it really is a ministry. It's um, And that people need, who are involved with church communications need to understand they're involved with the work of ministry. And as part of that, I jumped onto Twitter to look at what other church communicators were doing, and there were very few on there at the time. Meanwhile, I had always been involved, and I've been involved with writing uh, patient education and writing materials for primary care physicians, and I've done some time in pharma, and it is not the evil empire. Um, writing all that, I've been doing that for almost 30 years, writing healthcare. So once I was on Twitter, I discovered Hixom, the healthcare social media chat on Sunday night that Dana Lewis started. And uh, got involved with that, and that led to getting involved with the Mayo Clinic Center for Social Media, which you and I are connected there as well, um, and uh, the rest is history. So I, I in, in terms of social media, my, I tell people my drug of preference is Twitter um, because it is very fast. It's very short copy. Um, the way my my mind works, and I'm a visual kinesthetic learner, it works best for me because I'm typing and reading at the same time. I'm very good at multitasking, so not a problem for me to have TweetDeck open all the time with 13 columns to monitor different denominations, different industries, different conversations, wow. <laughs> and to jump in. I don't recommend it. I mean, if your brain does not work that way, Twitter will make you crazy. Yes. Um, I did. I did get involved with Facebook back in uh, 2009, actually 2008 as well, uh, because of a high school reunion coming up. I've never personally liked Facebook, but it is my number one as a digital consult strategist and consultant. It is my number one recommendation for organizations because I think Facebook works very well in terms of what it offers groups to build community. But personally, um, you should see my privacy settings. <laughs> and, and, and who does not show up? I mean, I don't want to break any hearts here, but uh, I would say probably 95% of the people I'm friends with, I have them completely removed from my news feed. I don't want to – I really – Yeah, I I'm, I'm not her. I'm not Yeah, I'm, I, no, I care no. deeply Me, not. That's um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> – um, um, and I want to so name, name. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, let's uh, yeah let's kind of shift gears here. So so um, so we're talking so so the tweet uh, about the tweet about Twitter that's so meta. Right. Uh, but um, so I, and I guess it's interesting kind of um, you know kind of remind you reminding me of your backstory there in electronic communication, and as we kind of dive into this this Twitter topic, uh, I don't know if you can kind of contrast as far as. Um, the communication, you know, mm-hmm. back in the past on, you know, listservs and bulletin boards and all that kind of stuff and, and kind of how that transitioned into initially um, how Twitter conversation, public Twitter conversations were very beneficial for you. Well, you know, yeah, and that's really interesting because when I think back and I did – I did flag these tweets because when I first put 
put that tweet up and you responded. Also, Deb Avery, who's a Presbyterian pastor out in California, responded immediately and said, well, how has it changed? How is it different? And that stimulated a public conversation uh, about why conversations have gone private. Now, Deb has been on Twitter, I think, maybe two years maybe three, but definitely two years. And so when you and I were talking with her in public, I became aware of that Twitter has really changed over the five-plus years I've been on it, and I'm not even an early adopter. I mean, I call myself a quasi-early adopter because my cohort, and it's really our cohort, those of us who came in about five and a half, six years ago or five years ago, that's when – we got onto Twitter. Um, my experience was I got on it. I was in a oh, what a mode, and then all of a sudden, the, the, I cracked the code. And what happened for me? I mean, my aha moment with Twitter was it was one of the it was the year of one of the presidential the presidential election, yeah. and I jumped onto Tweet Chat to follow a hashtag on one of the presidential debates. And in that moment, as I saw everything streaming through, in that moment, I realized I am in a global living room with smart, funny, interesting, clever people. Right. And and, and I got community and and that was, and that combined with the Hickson chat, which again, five years ago or four years ago, when it started, was a group of people who were deeply committed to social media in healthcare. Um, we actually didn't quite know how we would use it for healthcare, but we knew. I mean, the early participants in that chat, Ed Bennett, um, the AZ. Um, Chris Boyer, uh, E.K. Dave, I mean, a lot of us, um, the conversation was, well, how would hospitals use this? How would physicians use this? Um, pretty soon, I mean, people like Christian Sinclair, who started HPM, the Hospice of Palliative Medicine chat, Phil Bauman, who started RN chat and then MD chat, all of a sudden, out of the Hickson chat, people were realizing, wow, so this is a this is a forum where you can educate, inform, and inspire action and have conversations that you really can't have elsewhere. So how would we use that in healthcare? So very early on, we were having a lot of these conversations publicly because I think because, first of all, there weren't a lot of people having the conversation. That's right. And Mm -hmm. also, and also, what I think, and I looked at your post, I agree with everything you put in your post, and people should just go read it in terms of what you think got in the way. The other thing I think got in the way, two things. One is time, that over over time, uh, and I'm going to say social media as we sort of know it today, has been around for seven years, that I would say within the past two years, social media itself has completely changed the way we conceptualize time, the notion of what's fast, what's what synchronous, what's asynchronous has been completely changed because of social media. And what I tell people when I do workshops and trainings is that even if you are not involved with social media, even if you intend to never be involved with it, you cannot escape the fact that it has, has created a different culture of time and how we understand time. So I think in the past two years what's contributed to the change in content quality, a conversation on Twitter is that time has changed and it's very compressed. And then the other thing that I look at, you know, and I'm also a sociologist by training, so I look through the lens of sociology. And Susanna Fox, talk about back channels. Susanna, name dropping, but Susanna Fox is at Pew uh, Research. She and I have a back channel conversation that we've had for years. She's an anthropologist, and we spend a lot of time talking about woe is us don't we wish everybody had social science training? <laughs> because we really look at those cultural and social changes. So time has changed. And then I would say that what I've noticed as a sociologist is what I call the commodification of social media. So that within the past two years especially, businesses have finally figured out how to use social media to sell 
Right. And and that has shifted um, from engagement to content. Um, and content uh, is very, you know, it's a kissing cousin to spam if you don't balance. So, again, and this, this is, goes to the church issues, when I tell people if you're going to be on social media, you need to learn it for building community, whether that's a caregiver community, a patient community, a professional community, a church community, whatever that community is, you need to balance content and conversation. It's not just, you know, putting up links to great content. It's also asking questions, engaging with people and having that conversation. And that's what I see that's what I've seen shift in the past two years especially. Yeah, I, I remember when I when I started uh you know writing and blogging and, and uh you know it, it used to be um it used to be in the old days, uh, five yeah, so years ago. By cracky. By cracky. Uh, yeah. Um, and, you know, a long blog post used to be, you know, 500, 700 words, something like that. And and now, you know, you, you do, you know, 100 or 200 words, and people are like, oh, that's really, uh, that's really a long – you ever really have a lot to say, and it's a 140-character culture that we have now. Uh, and, and that's an interesting observation. And kind of to, to play off of some of your points, I mean, it's just, um, yeah, I, I, I guess what's, what's kind of fascinating to me, and, and uh, it's a little bit in my blog post, but, I mean, it's the, the, this, this conversation, uh, the rich conversations that you describe or that you talk about have, have kind of, you know, went private, and, and they're not so mm-hmm. much out there anymore, and, um, and when you pointed that out, and, and when I read that tweet, I was like, oh, you know, I stopped and thought about that for a little bit. Um, and, you know, is that because uh, of the kind of more mainstream or more success of social media? Are we kind of a victim of that? And everybody is kind of, you know, using social media more as a promotion platform, um, less than a conversation platform. Those are a lot of questions that were in my head over the past couple of weeks. Right, and you know, in your post, which is great, I think you zoom in. I think that that is true, but I think what's even more true is what you identify in your post. You call it political correctness, and that prevents deep analysis. I would also say that the rules of civility have changed. Um, that uh, people, and you see this in re- IRL in real life. So it's not just digital. It's not social media. My, you know, the tattoo I should probably get is virtual communities, real community. I spend a lot of time trying to explain and teach people that whatever goes on in so-called real life goes on um, in, in the digital world. So I think we now are at a point in culture where we don't have people who are are, um, I don't want to say trained, but uh, it's more like educated or encouraged in the art of conversation and discourse. So it's almost like there is no conversation either in real life or online um, or conversation the way it used to be. There's no, the salon culture of people coming together to have a lively conversation where not everybody agreed, but critical views were were welcomed and um, verbal jousting had some rules of engagement and civility. Um, that seems to have diminished over the years. And so I think that's part of what we're seeing is just people just don't know how to have a conversation. It's more like parallel play. I'll say this and you say that and... I'll say this, and then you'll say that, and, you know, those train tracks never meet on the horizon type of thing. So I think that's part of it, and you also identify being taken out of context, that if you're not on Twitter, and because we're talking about Twitter, and Twitter, in, in, for to have a real engagement on Twitter, you need to follow it, or you need to be willing to follow a conversation. And for some people... Again, I think part of it is a is an eye brain you know neuro thing. If your brain doesn't work that way, you're not going to get it. You're not going to be able to follow a conversation. So sometimes people just jump on 
They don't. They see a conversation that may have already been started between a couple of people or among a few people, but they don't do the research and say, what is anybody talking about? Now, as a best practice, if I jump into a conversation, this is my best practice and I recommend it, it's kind of a pro tip. If I see a conversation going on that I want to join, I will send a public tweet saying, Butting in to your conversation, is that okay? Or butting in to observe or loving your conversation, what did I miss? And that way I, in, I let people know that I'm joining their conversation. I give them an opportunity to get me up to speed. Um, I don't think I've ever had anybody, here's an invitation, I, haven't, I don't think anybody ever said, beat it, get out. You don't want you in the conversation. Right, right, right. But um, I think that it's, um, I recommend it as a way to enhance courtesy and civility. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I haven't seen it anywhere as a form of Twitter etiquette, but I, if I were writing that etiquette book, I would, I would add that to it. You also mentioned things being taken out of context, and that goes to this, if you're going to jump onto a conversation or it looks like people are arguing about something, I think it's perfectly not only permissible but also preferable to just put up a public tweet saying, at so-and-so, at so-and-so, it looks like you're having an argument, are you? Uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting that, that you bring up those points because uh, I would have thought, and, and maybe we need a whole other episode on the rewriting of Twitter etiquette, um, but but having people put tweets out there, I I would have thought that it is in kind of an implicit rule that when you put something out there, that it is out there for public consumption, and people are free to join that. Or maybe you're saying more as an as a courtesy or or an etiquette tweet to say, hey, I'm going to jump in. Just wanted to let you know. Is is that kind of what you were saying? I'm saying both. I'm saying that depending on what cohort you're in, uh, long-timers already understand that public is public and it's fair game, okay? I Mm -hmm. think now that social media has been integrated into the way we communicate. I mean, did you ever think you'd live to see, I didn't, did you ever think you'd live to see the day where you would turn on, there would be social TV, where you turn on the TV and on the bottom of the screen for news, for prime time, for anything, there would be a Twitter handle, a hashtag, and a Facebook logo. You know, so the notion that social media is part of our life is out there now. And so I think people who just come on it, and again, this is a gross generalization, but I think also depending on the age cohort and the ethos of what constitutes privacy, some people just don't get that public means public. And so, you know, getting into the world of church, which, by the way, isn't that different from the world of healthcare. Sure. And I spend, I spend a lot of time with the church, and it's Chisotham, that's how I pronounce it, C-H-S-O-C-M chat. The clergy and the, and the lay leaders and the religion publishers and anybody involved with church communication there, we spend a fair amount of time trying to explain to newbies that public means public. You have no privacy. Do not put anything in public that you do not want in public. You know, and you would think that would be good sense, but for some reason it's not. So I think in a way... Social media has become, for many of us, the air we breathe. It has, in fact, become normative, like having a telephone. So we, we don't think. And people who come into it who don't know the history of social media, haven't seen it evolved, really haven't gotten the memo about what you put in public and what you don't. Um, so I think that's part, I don't know if I was, did I answer your question oh yeah and and, and that okay. and you experience people and i experience people every day you know that we tell this pete that, that we tell them this and they said oh well it's too overwhelming i'm too scared of being public i'm not going to do any kind of social it's not important to me um and you know then that's fine and i should just stay out of social media um and, and you know i know how i respond to 
people in my kind of community about that, but but how do you respond to to people in your community when you say, hey, Meredith, this is just too much, it's too overwhelming, I don't want to be all public, um, social media is not for me. Mm-hmm. Well, I, and that, again, great question because I've changed, and my response has changed over the years. Um, up to about a year ago, maybe three years ago, I would spend a lot of energy trying to persuade people why they were wrong and how it was great and what they could get from the benefits. Um, now, um, my I take a little different approach, and um, I should actually put it up somewhere. I have this great slide I use when I do a presentation, um, and the visual is, uh, an ostrich with its head stuck in the sand and its butt up in the air. And my basic message these days is I I don't care if you use social media or not. All I ask is that you don't prevent other people from using it. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. because it's just mm-hmm. like if it's not your thing, if you don't like it, if it makes your brain crash, blah, 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 that's fine. But you know, let's stop having the conversation about whether or not to use social media. Um, and actually, the new book that's coming out, The Social Media Gospel, is a why-to book, because I, I just want to have that conversation one more time. I did not want to write a how-to book, because if you know how to use a computer and can go search YouTube or use Google, you don't need anybody to tell you how to use specific platforms. But you do need um, digital strategists to talk about, you know, why use this and and how does it enhance your organization, your mission, or whatever, which is what we did actually in the book that we did for the Mayo Clinic Center for Social Media, Bringing the Social Media Revolution to Healthcare. I mean, that set of essays, I love working on that book because, um, you know, in there you have all the the big thinkers up to now and in healthcare social media saying, hey, this is this is what's good about it. But I think, you know, the final message has to be, and I give you permission not to use it, but I will not support you in shutting it down in terms of access. I mean, the access issues in hospitals, um, you know, telling your employees that they can't use social media, uh, creating, keeping your communications people in the print zone, you know, all that sort of stuff. Uh, having, going to conference venues where there's no Wi-Fi. I mean, enough. Stop that. So <laughs> that's what, you know, and actually Christian Sinclair a couple of years ago, um, when there was a palliative medicine conference going on, he started a great campaign on Twitter because apparently, and I might have this wrong and he can just go tweet correct me in public, I don't care, um, but he started a great campaign about to get the, the hotel venue to pr- provide Wi-Fi. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. You know so yeah, I... it's just like the notion of having a conference now where you can't get online is is absurd. So, again, mm-hmm. I think those of us who use social media to educate and inform and inspire and to the extent that we're involved with workshop and conference management and all that, we need to start saying to the venues, hey, this is like the coffee service. Um, <laughs> you know, if you don't have it, if you can't provide it, we're going elsewhere. Um, uh, well, one last question on this public conversation, then I'll, I'll, we'll switch topics. So the okay. so the, the um, public com- great public conversations on Twitter, um, are mm-hmm. we past that? Is that part of the maturation process of this social media? Will we not see it as much anymore? Um, are, are we in the era where we have to try to find a different way to have uh, public great public conversations with deep questions? Or what, what is your sense of, of – you know, going back to something like that or having something like Great Conversations in public forums at this point? I think people who have Great Conversations will continue to have Great Conversations. Um, I'm hoping to God and all the angels and saints that they don't go away. Um, I, in my own Twitter world, Twitterverse, 
I actively follow and engage with people who still have great conversations and have conversations that are wide-ranging. I'm thinking, for example, Nick Dawson, who I used to talk to much more when I was more active with the Hickson chat, he's also a fabulous foodie. I mean, the man loves food and he understands cooking. Well, I was on a foodie chat. I put something up. I ended up in a whole conversation with him about food. Um, Nick will always remain one of my go-to people for a great conversation. There are people in my church network. You know, uh, I work ecumenically, so I'm working across denominations. And we're not always just talking about church. We're talking about artwork. We're talking about books. We're talking about uh, popular culture. We're talking about whatever we're talking about. Those are the people who are very uh, dear to me, um, with whom I always expect to have uh, rich, vibrant conversations. And I would say to other people, um, because it's kind of like preaching to the choir, because I think people who listen to your podcast probably already do this, but I would say that um, you can keep those, you can keep Twitter, Twitter will continue to do this if you continue to do this. It's not the technology, it's not the tool. I mean, I always wonder when people say, this doesn't do this and this doesn't do that. Well, once you set aside the functionality, we need to understand it's a tool. It's a tool for communication. It's not the communication itself. It's a tool. It's not a strategy. So if you are on Twitter to engage in great conversations with interesting people, that's your strategy. Twitter is just the tool. Your tactic is to find great people who will have great conversations. Um, I guess so. I guess on the line is uh, digital strategist, author, blogger, uh, Meredith Gould. I follow her on Twitter. Also, check out MeredithGould.com. And uh, let's kind of sh- shift gears here and uh, uh, maybe share a little bit with my audience your, your ecumenical background and, and talk a little bit um, uh, about church social media chat. How, how do you say that? Uh, Chisockum? That's, that's kind of funny. Chisockum, yeah. <laughs> People always say, how do you pronounce it? I like Chisockum. I mean, you can try, you can try something else, but... That's how I pronounce it. Well, that's that's kind of interesting. It's just like my multiple spirituality disorder, I say. I was I was raised Jewish and um yeah, I get my back up when people say, Oh, so you're no longer Jewish and I look at them like, Are you kidding me? Um but uh, I did in my uh forties um had a an amazing set of experiences that <laughs> me, I actually prayed for and ended up being uh, chosen to be baptized and then uh, wandered around a whole bunch of different churches and then um, chose the Catholic Church as my preferred, preferred provider of religion <laughs> um, and um, then spent uh, and actually worked as a pastoral associate at a Roman Catholic Parish uh, as pastoral associate for communications and also in liturgical ministry and also as a consultant to a Roman Catholic diocese for communications. And then, um, you know, went through my whole, and what I'd say to people is, well, you know, you can't be a lapsed Catholic until you become a Catholic. So I had to become a Catholic so I could say I was a lapsed Catholic. So I went through this whole thing about that. And then um, lately I'm a happy camper because of Pope Francis, but currently I worship at a Lutheran church. You can, and I'm married to an Episcopal priest, so you can just wow. I know, I know. It's it's you know, it's great being me. Um, but yeah. the Chisakum chat that really came out of my experience with Hickson because I would spend. Because in addition to the healthcare media, I was always working for church, not always, but for the past ten, fifteen years. I've been working in church communications, and I noticed that the issues that emerge in terms of church communications are, are almost identical to the healthcare communication issues. And I would say, you know, just swap the word. Instead of saying pastor or priest, instead of saying doctor, say pastor or priest. Instead of saying hospital, say church. Instead of saying CEO, say bishop. You know, and you've got the whole structure right there. And instead of saying patient, say congregant. Um, and you got you got the same structure, the same issues about authority, communications, privacy, all that stuff. 
So I was very interested in that, and um, I saw the need. And, again, this was a Twitter-based, this came out of Twitter. Conversation on Twitter, I guess, about a year and a half ago with a bunch of folks. And it was one of these, you know what, maybe we should have a chat about that. (laughs) So I I contacted, I, I sent email, very 20th century, I sent email to everybody in that public conversation saying, would you mind if I started a chat? Now, this, you know, being church and other nonprofit organizations, you know, the person who who suggests it usually ends up being in charge of it, you know. So, no, no, you go ahead and do that. So, I mean, that's what I did. So, um, we've been now chatting about a year and a half. I set it up. Uh, used Dana Lewis's model. I also had been participating in the HPM chat, so I knew how that was structured. Hickson Canada. So I already had experiences with chat, so I knew how I wanted to set up the Chisakam chat. Very clear from the get-go that it had to be cross-denominational. Um, and we do rotate moderators. We have a, a group of moderators, but for the six, first six months, I uh, was a sole moderator because I really wanted to establish the tone and the style of the chat. And um, it's it's become, and the other thing I wanted to do, and, and the community really made this happen, was if you go back into archives two years ago, nobody used that hashtag. So I used that hashtag. First, I did some research to find out whether it would be a useful hashtag, which is a funny story. Um, but when I found the hashtag that would work, it ended up being at C-H-S-O-C-M. I, you know, I, I put it up on clubs. I kind of claimed it. And then I started a Twitter campaign, uh, a public campaign saying uh, for content and conversation. And again, I, I was very clear for content and conversation about church social media, please use just hashtag Chisakam. And as I was monitoring conversations on TweetDeck, if I saw people posting content or having conversations, I would I would jump in or send them a direct message and say, would you please use this hashtag? And now it's it's the standard hashtag for for those conversations. So I if I I'm very happy about having uh, made that contribution to the Twitterverse. Um, one thing that's very interesting that I think you'll be interested in, and this goes back to what's public, what's private, what's in the public channel, what's back channel, there's this very interesting paradox. Because I am very open about, I, I have, I'm an advocate of having an, an open, integrated identity on Twitter. Um, in, on social media, it's in my blog. It's actually in my books. Uh, people meet me and they say, "Oh, you sent your books. You sound they sound just like you." And I'm like, "Okay, <laughs> but um, thank you." I think so um, because I'm open about all that. What I noticed, um, I would get direct messages. Here's the paradox: the health people, the people in our like you're you're the mind our healthcare social media networks, has a lot of people, a very deep faith, who are very active in their churches, very deep faith, um, and they would contact me back channel to say, I can't believe you tweet about this stuff. How do you get away with it? (laughs) Okay? No, seriously, okay? And, um, And I do keep confidences. Um, until somebody tells me I don't have to. <laughs> but um, I've had some extraordinary back channel conversations with healthcare colleagues who feel that they simply cannot talk about faith issues. And part of my, my response to them is, well, you're in public positions, you're in public hospitals or public organizations. I get why you can't do that, um, blah, blah, blah. Um, paradoxically, the, the faith people can contact me back channel to talk about health care. Wow. So they'll ask me a lot of questions about, um, you know, my joke is, yeah, I play a doctor on Twitter, about health care conditions 
about health patient e-patient advocacy, about dealing with practitioners, because they know, because I publicly tweet about all that. And very recently, and I have Christine Kraft to thank for this, because she two years ago talked me into writing about having fibromyalgia. And I was diagnosed back in 86 when it was still called fibrositis and was considered the, the, uh, right. the latest neurotic disease that didn't exist. And yeah. I never wrote about it. I never talked about it. I just kind of toughed it through and because um, I didn't want that to be my primary identity either in the healthcare world or anywhere else. Um, and Christine talked me into writing a book for uh, writing a piece for Better Medicine called My Health Health Story and talking about fibromyalgia. And that went up on their blog. has gotten some really great responses. But as a result of that, people started to contact me. And so, again, and this is a social media thing, it's only been in the past couple of years that I have felt comfortable, uh, you know, talking about that. And by talking about it, I mean on social media. And as a result, I get faith people. I have a whole network of faith people who have fibro, clergy who have fibro. And how they're right. even ambulatory to get to the pulpit is beyond me. I mean, it is mm-hmm. stunning to me. But they will contact me because they know I'm willing to talk about it in public. They cannot talk about it in public any more than the healthcare people can talk about their faith in public. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally uh, relate Wild, huh? to, to that because I've, I've sent you some, some direct messages, and, and I've never, you know, talked about religion on this show before until now. Uh, mm-hmm. And. You know, it's it's really interesting, and I'm not sure if if that always if it's if it's part of this new culture that we we've been talking about since the beginning of the show, or it's always been maybe kind of taboo not to discuss religion and politics and all that stuff in you know the culture from before. But it's uh, uh, it, it, it's very interesting to me, kind of kind of observing. I, I have I have my. Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, a curiosity about sociology and, and, and that type of study um, and, and how, you know, some of these things play out and, and how some of it works. And uh, it's interesting how you kind of frame things because you have a lot more background in this than I do, but uh, it's interesting kind of seeing some of uh, these observations uh, in the culture, in the public. Uh, and it's very, very interesting to me how, how you have these, how these back channel conversations um, about different topics from different communities. Uh, that's very fascinating to me. Well, and you know, doctors, especially those who consider themselves atheists or agnostic, and that's you know, it, it would not would not use the language of ministry. But if you look at what great, what does it mean to be great? Doctor, and then also, you know, because you are in family medicine, you are dealing with a system. You are dealing with a whole—not just the whole person. You're dealing with a family system, so you have more access and more need of a sociological imagination than somebody's in a, a very, you know, very, uh, you know, in a specialty area of medicine where that's not necessary. But. Um, you, you know as a family practice medicine practitioner that your best information comes when you create a safe container of safe space for listening to what not only what your patients are telling you about what hurts or what whatever, but what they're not telling you. You know, what what what's in the spaces, what's underneath the language, what's around it. And that is that that's a ministry in, in the world of church and synagogue, actually the world of ministry, that's called the ministry of presence. You know, so wow. you know being present, you know, being present to someone's upset, their pain, physical or emotional, um, that's really ministry. Um and so with the church social media, it's really interesting because now we have an industry, and um, yeah, church religion is an industry. It's a social institution that's turned into an industry in many ways, and that's besieged for a lot of reasons, many of which are justifiable. Uh, some of it should just go away forever and ever. 
But what you have are people who are called to the vocation of minister and ministry. Like some are, even if you don't use the language, called to the vocation of healer and as doctor. Um, who are discovering that social media is a way to um, engage with people in a way that that 10 to 15 minute uh, reimbursed slot doesn't do it, or even what clergy call the grinning grip line after services. You know, right, so right. Social media provides that for people who are ministering to others, whether you whether or not you use the language of ministry. And so lately I've been having a very interesting conversation, again, back channel, back channel. Right, exactly, exactly. And also email <laughs> and then on phone with a couple of people who have been, who are in church communications and social media, who are feeling very, very discouraged and not sure what they're doing or why they're doing it. And what I've come around to to realize for them and in my own situation, uh, and I think this is true, so just to loop it back to the Mayo, what we're doing at Mayo, uh, Clinic for Social Media, that we're working at the meta level. You know, we're, uh, those of us in Chisakam, we're a lot of us are ministering to ministers. Those of us involved with MCCSM are, in a sense, doctoring doctors you know, and hospitals, that those of us involved with social media and understand the value of it, we are not necessarily what you are because you're, you're an active practitioner, but a lot of us aren't necessarily in direct service, but we are in, you know, we're called to support and train and teach and encourage those of us, uh, those who are in direct service. Yes. Yes, uh, and I did want to uh, give a, uh, a shout out to uh, to a podcast that that I, actually you started uh, getting me listening to because you were on it. It's called the Church, uh, the Social Media Church Podcast uh, for people who like podcasts. Obviously, from audience here, uh, socialmediachurch.net. Um, so, Meredith, before I let you go, I, I, I did want to um, talk about Pope Francis, uh, and uh, because I've been meaning to, to talk about this, and, and I never had an opportunity to do that on the air until now. And uh, and for, for and for people who don't know, and I've never shared this before, you know, I, I'm a product of you know 12 years of Catholic school, um, and I applied to go to you know Catholic university, and and uh, um, that didn't work out, and then I end up on this on this medical track, and and uh, it was it, it's been very interesting for me to kind of see. Uh, the Catholic Church over the past few years, I, I've, I don't know if this is common with a lot of people, or you know, I've just kind of swayed away a little bit from from uh, from the Catholic Church for the past few years. And but it, it is with this it is with this new Pope um, and and learning a little bit more about him um, has made me a little bit you know more curious about maybe you know you know giving uh, my faith tradition uh, another chance. And uh, it, it's it's. Uh, as I read more about him, uh, I, it's, it's really interesting to me. See, this pope seems to be a, a, um, different than than kind of characteristics of of, of past uh, church leaders. Um, uh, kind of what, what's your what's your take a little bit about on that, Meredith? Well, it's a pretty interesting time, you know, as, as a convert to Christian, well, convert, it, you know, as someone who is baptized as a Christian, although I'm going to retain the Jewish thing, you know, I call myself a first century Jew, just with better hygiene. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and involved in and around the Catholic Church, I actually wrote a book years ago that was published by Doubleday called The Catholic Home Celebrations and Traditions, which was, it's, it's a it's a nice evergreen book. I'm very proud of that book. But in the past, I would say the past decade or so, I've been very uncomfortable with what's been going on um, in the oh, papacy. Yeah. And and yeah. just in, in fact, when I started going to, to go to this wonderful ELCA church in Baltimore, and the first time I went um, after the service, a woman next to me said. Oh, where where are you from? I said up the block. She goes, well, why haven't we seen what you know? Kind of like, what are you? And I didn't expect this at all. She had her hand on my arm, which was very lovely, and I said to her, I'm 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 a broken-hearted Catholic, and I started crying, which I did not expect 
to do. I did not plan that. So I started crying, and I said, my heart right. has been broken. My heart has been broken by this church. And yeah. that was before the pope was elected. And um, I, again, I'm, I'm deeply, deeply, deeply committed to working ecumenically. I think that's where the juice is. I would make a distinction between faith and religion. You said returning to the faith of your youth. I would like to suggest that you're just maybe re-exploring the religious institution or the preferred provider of religion, uh, right. but your faith is your faith. And um, and so in this Pope, I see opportunities to um, restore the best of Catholic uh, uh, doctrine and, you know, the, and, and the commitment to social justice and the concern for the poor and the, and the, the return to uh, seeing gospel values as the primary reason for even being on the face of the earth to, you know, lift up the brokenhearted and shelter the homeless and feed the hungry, um, you know, the core, you know, the corporal acts of mercy. And this, this particular Pope seems to embody that. That he's a Jesuit is very interesting because the Jesuits have all, um, you know, if they can want to get anything done, hire a Jesuit because they really have management skills. Um, I'm having a lot of fun reading articles, usually from National Catholic Reporter uh, interviews. I just read a great one with his sister and what she thinks will happen. Um, so I, you know, it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm married. I've been married to an Episcopal priest who was raised Catholic and actually went to Catholic seminary for a while um, when he was a younger man. Younger man, and um, it kind of our 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 joke is: I say I'd rather fight than switch, and he said I'd rather switch than fight. And so <laughs> we we had some really interesting conversations. But I would say in the past couple of years, especially during the previous papacy, I was kind of got some gallows laughs from my my type of my type of Catholic where I'd say, All right, I'm putting up I'm I'm printing up the T shirt, the bumper sticker, my church wrong or more wrong You know, and everybody <laughs> laughs and say, Ha 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 but this is the first time in many, many, many years, uh, probably two decades, that I have felt um that I could say I was Roman Catholic and not feel horribly embarrassed by it. <laughs> no, I, I completely relate to that statement right there. And it's just, yeah. uh, uh, you know, I, I, I have, uh, you know, received a, a lot of kind of my, you know, core beliefs. And just like you said, you know, separate, you know, the message, you know, from the hierarchy or the person or the man or whatever. Uh, and, um, w w it, it, you know, it's, it, it's, I don't know. I, I agree with you. You know, I I I, I feel optimistic um, for the first time in, in a long time uh, about the uh, organization and the hierarchy. I've never doubted uh, my faith and 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 the teachings and and the the uh, uh, the foundation that I received. You know, from all of that, um, it is more of the the hierarchy and the organizational. Uh, part um, of the Catholic Church that that I feel a little bit um, better about things, and just like you said, you know, not not to be so embarrassed to to say, hey, you know, I mean, I I was in Catholic school for twelve years, and uh, you know, um, you know, sometimes I was embarrassed to even kind of admit that. So, um, well, Mike, I, I, you've got to yeah, you got to know that if you had twelve years of Catholic school, you're the only doctor on the planet with good handwriting. <laughs> uh well I mean I, well I type everything now, so that's how I kind of get around it. <laughs> all right. All right. With the Catholic school you had to if you had, if you were educated by nuns probably a good handwriting. But anyway, yeah. It's it's a very interesting time, but you know what I was very excited about being raised Jewish and again one of my other books is Why is there a menorah on the altar, the Jewish roots of Christian worship. My one of my other big harangues is gee, Christians, could you figure out where you actually came from and oh by the way oh, by the way, the historical Jesus was a Jew, okay? Um so I, there were tremendous, tremendous damage done to uh, Christian Jewish Catholic Jewish relations in the past uh, during Benedict's 
papacy. And one of the first things Pope Francis has done, in addition to reaching out to the Orthodox Church, has been to reach out to Jews and also to uh, Muslims. And that, you know, if he does nothing else, that public understanding that all the Abrahamic religions share um, a common legacy and a common faith as monotheistic Abrahamic uh, traditions is, is stunning. It is absolutely stunning if you're an observer of church history. So those are some good conversations to have in public on Twitter. Um, yeah, I think and so. We, yeah, and then I say, and then I usually tweet, and let the unfollowing begin. But at, the point, <laughs> at this point, i got to tell you, at this point, after, you know, five-plus years on Twitter, uh, and blogging for a little longer. Uh, I have been unfollowed and sometimes with some nasty comments by just about anyone who, you know, thinks I'm, you know, possessed by Satan or whatever. You know, it's just like, you know, there I, there <laughs> I just, I revert to Yiddish. It's like Zygus into hate, you know, divide. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My, uh, my guest online has been uh, Meredith Gould. I follow her on Twitter and uh, MeredithGould.com. And uh, I will give you uh, more information. Uh, uh, but, uh, Meredith, I'll let you gather some thoughts, uh, for some closing thoughts from my audience, uh, yeah, probably about social media and, you know why? Why, uh, why is it? Uh, why do you think it's important uh, not only for healthcare but for but for church and ecumenical uh, uh, communication? But uh, want to direct people to uh, your uh, Twitter. Uh, please follow and unfollow her as you wish. Uh, Meredith Gould, uh, uh, MeredithGould.com. And yeah, I am looking at your your um, your book page on your uh, on your website, and it says that the social media gospel sharing the good news in new ways. And uh, so, when's that, when is that going to be coming out there, Meredith? Uh, the pub date is in July. It's in production now. It's actually gone out to um, blur, what we call blurbers, uh, people who are reviewing it. And I'm very delighted because it's a whole range of wonderful people. Um, you know, we've got Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Catholics, Baptists, non-denomination. I mean, a real Lutherans, a wide range of people. Um, in different churches reviewing it. So they're blurbing it now. It's in production. I just sent back all my corrections on the galleys and uh, it should be available in July officially, but there should be, it should be out a little early. And, um, uh, and she's also the editor for uh, bringing uh, the social media revolution to healthcare, working with the uh, Mayo Clinic Center for Social Media, and also author of uh, Getting Married: Using Social Media to Celebrate the Sacred and the Word Made Flesh: Communicating Church and Faith. Today, you can get more information at MeredithGould.com. Uh, so, Meredith, so uh, kind of as some closing thoughts for my audience here, we have had—I can't believe it's been an hour so so uh, so quickly. Um, um, you have some closing thoughts from our audience about social media and uh, well, why you think it's important. Why is it, it uh, it's been very important to you? Why it's very cool out there in social media land these days? Well, I think social media has given us. Uh, with social media, we have the tools to create community and to sustain community in ways that we have not had before. We it gives us the ability to reach out to people who cannot physically be in, in places. It gives us the ability to reach out um, to uh, people we would not otherwise meet. It is extremely democratizing. Um, I have friends. Uh, uh, you know, you get to meet people again, people you would never ever otherwise meet, and because depending on your avatar and your bio. Nobody knows how old you are. They don't know where you are. They don't know anything about you, uh, which could be a bad thing. But I think it all comes through, you know, eventually as as you uh, have the conversation on social media. But it, it gives us access in unprecedented ways to engage with people um, who are new to us. And I think that's a wonderful thing. It, it, it makes the world simultaneously bigger and smaller, uh, which I think is a good thing. Wow, that's uh, what a great way to end uh, end our conversation, uh, Meredith Gould. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I've, I've been looking for a reason to for us to have this uh, <laughs> nice conversation on the podcast here. Uh, it's been a great time. We have to bring you back at some point. We can talk about uh, whatever else you want to talk about. But thank you so much for the time today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a great day.
Okay, thank you. All right, kids. So that uh, ends my show here uh, today. Uh, very exciting. I mean, that's uh, that's very cool. And uh, I, I think I actually may have the the courage. The courage. Meredith has given me the courage to talk about non medical things, maybe on the block and on the podcast uh, here as well. Because I mean, you know, we're all well rounded people. You know, we're all not like you know one brand person. You know, we're all you know a a, a bunch of thoughts. Uh, uh, that are not our particular brand, in my case, uh, medicine. Uh, so, so yeah, maybe I'll open things up here a little bit after show number 300. And, and as I close the show here today, I want to thank everybody for, for your support through the years, um, getting up to episode uh, number 300. I couldn't have done it without you. Um, as I say for every show, I'm very, very humbled uh, that anybody would want me to want to listen to me uh, talk about whatever here on Internet radio. So uh, thanks for everybody who uh, listened live and also people who uh, downloaded on the podcast. Uh, you can always follow me at familymedicinerocks.com, also blogtalkradio.com slash famedrocks. And also follow me on Twitter, Dr. Mike Sevilla, the best Twitter. Well, actually, okay, after Meredith Gould, the second best. Uh, Twitter person to follow here on Twitter. So have a great week. Have a great weekend. And yes, there's a Saturday night show, which is less serious than this one. Uh, we'll be talking about a lot of crazy stuff on Saturday night here on the Blog Talk Radio Network. My name is Mike Savella. Thank you for joining me. Uh, go uh, check out familymedicinerocks.com, also facebook.com slash famedrocks. Have a great day. Have a great week. Have a great weekend. And we will talk to you all very soon. Have a good day, everybody.